Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. <laughs> my dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call. And you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. Today's guest is connecting being unloved and abused, and that has led him to overcome by being a combat veteran as well as an extreme endurance athlete in Muay Thai and surfing. And now he helped a former guest, Lily Brash, who has a rare form of muscular dystrophy, climb 2,000 feet and win a Guinness World Book record. Tom Jones, welcome. I, wow, just watched your interview with Mark Devine. That was amazing. It's an interesting story. (laughs) Yeah, I actually heard him speak at Tony Robbins. Oh, okay. Years back. So that was really cool to see the two of you guys. It becomes such a small world sometimes, right? Yes. Speaking of small world, I would love to start off talking about somebody that we both mutually know, Lily Brash, because you just helped her achieve a world record, which is really amazing. Yeah, she's an amazing person. What she took on was nothing less than Herculean. I mean, she has zero climbing experience whatsoever. And she just took on a double black diamond advanced climb, which would challenge pretty much anybody. You know, it was a real demonstration of true grit and determination and willpower. Her why, I think, is just so strong that it just drives her. And part of that, me saying that is that that was a lot of the conversation that she was having along the way. So you could tell that that was a very significant driver. So it was an amazing thing to watch. It was an amazing thing to be a part of. I've been working with her for close to four months now with mental strength and resilience, a mental strength and resilience program. I'm actually an unbeatable mind coach, Mark Divine certified coach. So I'm working with her and with mental strength and resilience since I've kind of so been there cool. and done that. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me about what that looks like. How did you get involved with that? What, what does that involve? Um, I've done self-improvement and self-help programs for years. And after doing the podcast with Mark Devine and talking to him privately, I was just like, there's way more than meets the eye here. Something's gone. You know what I mean? And so anyway, he was told me about his unbeatable mind program and coaching certification looked into it and I was like I've done a lot of these things and this is probably by far the best and most comprehensive self-help and development program and coaching program that I've been in so anyway that's how I got involved in it that's amazing yeah Talk to a little bit about working with Lily and what it's been like knowing her over the last four months 
It's been really gratifying. After talking with Lily the very first time, I knew that I could do a lot to help her gain mental strength and resilience. And it's interesting. I think that this is just a, a human condition. She's, she told me right out of the gate that she had been told and encouraged basically to quit her entire life. People had been enabling her and giving her excuses to quit, to sit in a wheelchair and call it a day. And, you know, she has a pretty affluent family and take a free ride and have, have a nice life. I think where she and I really click and resonate is, is that my childhood was a real dumpster fire and I wasn't willing to accept that all the accolades that are supposed to come with that went against the grain real hard. That's really been my story. And that's was her story. And I think that that's where we found alignment. I love that. Yeah, I want to just give a little bit of background for people who don't know Lily's story. I have interviewed her, but she has a rare form of muscular dystrophy. I mean, there's only a couple people I think in the world that has her form of muscular dystrophy. Is that right? It's super rare. I'm, I'm, I, I believe so. That's what I understand as well. Let's just put it this way. If you just see her walk down the street, you know that there are some issues. It's, it's visible. To watch her just true gritted up that Camelback Mountain was amazing. When I first came into the project and started looking into this, there hadn't been a lot of real structured planning and did was I went in and scoured this website and I found out that they have guides. I suggested and they thought it was a good idea that we got that we get a guide. So we got the guide and he actually had video of the entire way up there. And after that video, I was just like, oh man, this is like an advanced deal. You know, this is like serious business. I don't care how you spell your last name. That's a freaking serious climb that she did. She just freaking, she just did it. It was, it was just amazing to watch. It was, like I said in the beginning, it was true grit, sheer determination, willpower, physical testimonial of the human spirit and what the human body can do if properly motivated and driven. Did she train for this? She did. She only trained like like in a weight room and walking on a treadmill and, and so on and so forth. It's not like she went to several different mountains. And if this was a ladder, she went from step one to step 11. When, when I saw that video, I was very concerned. I was like, okay, I'm okay with this, but straight out, we're bringing a goldfish to an alligator fight here. Whoa. She was that far in over her head as far as her training her physical ability and what she took on so then it became a mental thing which you yourself have faced so oh, no, yeah I feel lot. like she picked the right partner she picked the right yeah she picked <laughs> the right partner her strength and con uh, conditioning coach also came along and he was a very big help and her sister um, oh, nice. was also a really big help she just did it I mean I'm almost speechless because of it and I've done a lot. I've worked with a lot of different people and she just grinded it out. And one of the things that I talked about early on with her team was I was like, okay, all I've heard is talk about getting up the mountain. We got to get back down this thing, which is like twice as dangerous as going up the thing. So it was a duality. You know, people talk about the ascent, the ascent, the ascent. Well, no, that's only half the story. Getting down was the real dangerous part. Yeah. So what was it like when she got to the top, though, and she she made the ascent? She didn't get all the way to the top. She got three quarters of the way up to the top, and we had to make a very difficult decision. Ooh. It was like, if we get you up to the top, we're not going to be able to get back down to the bottom before nightfall. Now we're talking about a whole new dynamic of somebody either getting seriously injured or killed. And that's really where it was. We had a few different choices. 
And she really struggled with it. And she's like, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. We kept going probably about another half hour. And she said, you know, I was really proud of her. She said, I'm not, I proved my point. I'm not going to make this an ego thing. I'm not going to risk other people getting hurt or killed because of my ego. I proved something. I've learned a lot. We're going to come back next year and we're going to retackle this thing and get all the way to the top. Her father basically pulled the plug on it and she was like, no way, no. And so they kind of went back and forth for 20 minutes and I kind of pulled him aside and I said, look, can I give you some advice? And he said, sure. I said, don't do that. I said, let her be the master of her own destiny. You've made the decisions her whole life. Let her do it. And I was banking and betting on what she did because I've been working with her intimately. And I thought that she would reflect on this and make the decision that she made, or we would get to the top and we would have to come up with some plan, like call the fire department, get her helicopter lifted out of there or whatever. But I asked her father not to pull the Trump card out on her and play it. You know, this is a growth thing for Lily. And what I told Lily before the climb was, is that you're going to go through a crucible. Crucible is heating something up and reforging it into something new. And I said, you're going to be a different Lily Brash when this is all done than you were before it started. And that's sort of what I asked her dad too, is I said, let her be a different Lily Brash when this is all over. And you don't want to be the one that she blames for pulling the plug on this. I don't think that's just my two cents. Do what you want, but there it is. And so he agreed to that. Half hour later, she pulled the plug on it herself and it was her deal. And we had a conversation the day after where she was going through some real struggles with feeling like she quit. We talked intimately about that. I impressed upon her. I, I just asked her some questions. I said, do you feel that your overall goal was pushed the needle was pushed further than it was before we did this, your overall goal and your overall message. And she thought about it and she said, yes. And I said, so that wasn't a failure. I said, two, you took on something that was so far over your ability and your climbing experience and so on and so forth. It was crazy. So you didn't quit. You learned. And if you want to go, and I said, you made a lot of friends. You made friends with the city council. You made friends with the fire department. You made friends with the park rangers. Everybody's behind Lily Brash. I said, so here's the deal. If you want to go tackle this again next year and get to the top, because the fact that you made it three quarters of the way up and all the way down, if you do the math, you could have made it to the top, even though the final ascent was seriously, it was something, but she would have made it to the top. And I said, so next year we get you to the top. We talk to the fire department. We get your helicopter right out of there and we call it a day. I'm willing to do that. But what I'm not willing to let you do is sit on the curb, cry about it and say, I quit. I said, because that's not the Lily Brash that I know. We kind of talked through that some more and she uh, she's on top of the world now, you know, and she should be. She did something amazing. 2,200 feet, right? 2,000 feet, right in, right in there. I mean, she made it three quarters of the way up to the final ascent. Like I said, we would have got up there and then getting down would have been, especially the final ascent, that quarter of the way, getting back down, she or somebody else could have really, really got hurt because that was a, that was a real challenging part of the climb. So I said, you know, look at Elon Musk, look at NASA, look at Henry Ford, look at all of these people that in, embrace quote unquote failure. Because I told her, I said, Lily, you've told me your perspective. I said, would you do me a favor? And can we, can we explore a different perspective? And she goes, sure. And that's how I started the conversation of talking her through what I consider to be reality and a solution to her quest to get up this mountain. Mark Devine says it really well. It's fail forward fast. Yeah. Like you were saying, I don't really see it as a failure. I mean, what a yeah. tremendous feat. Yes, but you're not Lily. See mm, what I'm saying? True. In her mind, in her mind, because I understand it. I understand this person really well because we have a lot of the same traits. 
In her mind, her goal was to get up to the top, no excuses, no quitting, so on and so forth, right? And I completely understand that. And I said, but we have to put it into perspective. You know, let's put it into perspective. Let's, I said, Lily, was the view from the bottom of the mountain different from the view three quarters of the way up the mountain? She goes, yeah, it was. I said, okay, well, let's take a look at this from a different place. Let's take a look at this from the perspective of succeeding instead of failing. So when you called me up, we got your perspective on failing. We know what that looks like. Let me take your hand and, and lead you around to the other side of the lake, which is the perspective of succeeding. And I said, Lily, there's two wolves that live inside all of us. One wolf is called the fear wolf. One wolf is called the courage wolf. And whatever wolf that you feed is the dominant wolf. And I said, so what wolf are you feeding right now? She said, the fear wolf. And I said, we need to feed the courage wolf, Lily. So let's let's do that. So we took her around, gave her a different perspective on what I feel really happened. At the end of the conversation, agreed with me and said, you're absolutely right. I said, and it's, I said, besides Lily, it's not over until you quit. I said, pain is only, I mean, it's, I have a brand called quit proof, right? And our tagline is pain is only temporary quitting lasts a lifetime. I said, so we're not quitting until you say we're not going to go and get to the top of this mountain. So as far as in my mind, this is still on, you know, come back next year on the 6th of March and get you to the top and have the helicopter pull you out of there. So we have success and nobody gets killed. You know, <laughs> like, what do you think? So yeah. she was all about it. And that's the plan. It kind of reminds me of how you ran to New York and then flew home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I ran to New York 120 consecutive marathons. That was the end of my quote unquote agreement or contract. And I spoke at Nike town with for the New York marathon. And I decided that I'd run the New York marathon the next day. And I'd quit when I said I was quitting, not when my piece of paper said I was quitting. Lily and I share many of the same, I think, dreams and aspirations, a lot of the same mindset and so on. And I'm now getting ready to run 76 marathons in a row. Starting on April 19th, I'm running from Montevallo, Alabama to St. George, Utah for an organization called United We Pledge, which champions freedom, family, faith, and being good constitutional law-abiding citizens, which I think is kind of in decline and maybe a little bit under attack right now in our country. They have a place in Montevallo, Alabama called the American Village, which is a place that has recreations of buildings that were really significant in the development of our country and the constitution. And they have people that literally role play like George Washington, Ben Franklin. I mean, and they literally live their lives. They don't do TV or any of that stuff. And they are like Ben Franklin and George Washington. And so anyway, to make a long story short, they bring kids in and they let them step onto the stage of American history instead of learning it in a classroom or out of a book. I work with a company called Balance of Nature, and they are a company that do fruit and vegetable supplements. And they have 160 acres that they've procured in Utah, and they've dedicated 40 acres to build an American village in the West. And so I'm going to carry a sapling from the American village in the East, run it on foot to the American village in the West and break ground there for that project, which I think is really important. I think it's more apparent right now with the climate, what's going on in Ukraine. You can say what you want about this country, but hey, how would you like to be there? I think that the values that a lot of us take for granted are painfully obvious when you look at the situation that's going on over there or in other places in the world where, you know, these dictators are calling the shots. They're basically murdering civilians. They're like, I don't care what you say. I'm taking that place. Do something about it. You know what I'm saying? It's, and this, these are the things that, in my opinion, my humble opinion, that America is, is so much different. I really want to go out and I want to try to push those values back into the forefront because that I believe that freedom and family and faith and being good constitutional law-abiding citizens are what makes our place special.
Where did you learn that? Those values? Yeah. I would give the credit to my, to my pseudo parent, the Marine Corps. <laughs> my childhood was a dumpster fire. I was removed from my home when I was 12 years old for child abuse. I was put into a children's home that was a children's institution. It wasn't like a foster home. It was an institution that had about a hundred other kids. The dynamic though, was it was run by pedophiles. I experienced pedophilia for three to four solid years, which really does a number on your mind in a litany of ways, all the way from, you know, sexual orientation to trust issues and just destroys your in it, it robs it I, I believe that it robs a person of the most precious thing that they have which is their innocence and so when I ran away from that home I joined the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps was structured they meant what they said they said what they meant they had great morals and values they were an organization that got outside of themselves and served something or someone else all your clothes matched so it was a good deal <laughs> <laughs> oh my and then God. I was very fortunate as well. When I got out of the Marine Corps, I started working for Chuck Norris as a sparring partner and training partner. And Chuck Norris was an amazing role model. Again, morals, values, being a really big patriot, doing things for other people. He was a really great role model for me as well. And then I ended up bodyguarding a lot when I was a professional fighter. And I bodyguarded for a guy named Glenn McCusker, who owned the largest computer memory vending company in the world and traveled the world with this guy. He had really great morals and values, was a great family man. He used to bring motivational speakers in to his company. And I mean, top the top motivational speakers, the Tony Robbins, the Lou Holtz, and I would just soak all this stuff in. And then in 1998, I decided that I wanted to lend my athletic ability to raise money to buy a playground for a foster facility in my area that needed it and didn't have the money. When I did that, and we dedicated that playground, I had a seminal moment or epiphany in my life where for the first time in my life, I, I really had this epiphany that I knew what my life was worthwhile and what I was going to do with it. And that was to use my athletic ability to bring awareness to and raise money for what I consider to be worthwhile causes. And it's interesting because in 1998, when I ran from Oregon to Mexico for this playground for kids, I find myself 25 years later now running from Montevallo, Alabama to St. George, Utah, again, for kids, because where you and I or other people would have to go all over the nation on weekend trips to visit these particular monuments and places, they brought them all into one location. And so that's when they bring the kids in and they let them experience all of that in a day or two. So 25 years later, I find myself again running and championing a cause that educates and, and motivates and inspires children. So do you see yourself in these children? Oh, yeah, I see myself in everyone. Wow, that's profound. How I so? Did. In different ways. When I look at people and, and I speak with them and I interact with them, it always seems like I see myself a little of myself and pretty much everybody that I, I come in contact with. That's amazing. Enough. Yeah. What you were just saying, how you see yourself in everyone, I really believe that when you impact so many people's lives, that is an incredible legacy because they are each taking a piece of you with them. Oh, yeah. I would agree with you wholeheartedly there, for sure. I asked Chuck Norris one time, I said, how did they <laughs> cast you for the role opposite to Bruce Lee? And he goes... You really don't want to know. I said, yeah, sure I do. I do. I actually do want to know. He goes, okay. He goes, well, tell you what. He goes, there were five martial artists in the world that were good enough at the time. He goes, out of those five martial artists, I was the only one that was fair skinned, blue eyed and strawberry blonde hair, completely opposite from Bruce Lee. Everybody else was dark hair, dark eyes, 
more dark complexion. And that's why they pick me. I go, no, he goes, that's exactly why they pick me. Do you feel like you've had luck along the oh, way? I think that life's all about luck. hundred percent. I really do. I believe that the luck plays a huge role in almost everything. And I can tell you that too, from bodyguarding, a lot of the people that I bodyguarded were convinced that it was their brilliance and divine ability that got them where they are. And I'm, and from my perspective, I was like, no, you were in the right place at the right time with the right thing. And people that are real humble and and that I've bodyguarded and I've had associations with like Mark Devine and other people like that have said there's a lot of luck involved. Interesting. So yeah, yeah. I believe that luck plays a huge role in our day-to-day -day lives and where we end up. And I believe that that plays a role. Do I think it plays like the main role? No, I think that we have to be able to see opportunity. We have to be able to see it and then we have to have the guts to go for it. And that's one thing that brings us back to the Lily Brash story. She has saw the opportunity and she had a burning passion to do it. But like I said, in the interview with Lily, I said, Lily, what Lily Brash brings to the table is, is that she gets people's attention and attention is the bridge from one mind to another. That's the actual bridge attention. That's why they tell you in the school, pay attention. That's why your parents tell you pay attention, pay attention, because if you don't pay attention, that bridge can't be mind to mind, can't be there. And then the information from one mind to another goes over that bridge called your attention and gets into the other person's mind. And that's one thing that I've noticed. And even when we did this climb, people were cheering or this one lady stopped and was just sobbing and saying, oh my gosh, you're so inspiring and on and on and on. And I was like, see, Lily, you get people's attention and that's the bridge from one mind to another. And that allows you a vehicle to deliver your message. Because if you don't have somebody's attention, you can't deliver your message. Yeah. Talk a little bit about some of the attention you've garnered. When all the running that I've done has been at a pace of a marathon a day, every day. So it's 26.2 miles a day, every day for 121 consecutive days. Normally the first or one of the very first questions that I get is why in the world would you do this? Well, I'm not, then it used to slip out of my mouth without really even knowing it. And I was like, well, now that I have your attention, let me tell you why, you know, later on in life, I forgot where I heard it or read it or whatever, that the that the attention, oh, it was in the four agreement by Don Ruiz, the, the four agreements that the attention is the bridge between one mind and another. I go, there it is right there. You know, you have to be able to get somebody's attention. So I didn't know it at the time, but I, what, what I said early in 1998, when I started this 25 years ago was, well, if I run a long way, I'll get people's attention and that'll give me so many seconds to get my message across to them. And so running a marathon a day, every day definitely gets people's attention. And it gives me the opportunity, however long their attention span is, or I can hold their attention to deliver whatever message it is that I have. And so uh, I did done that with running. I set the world record on a stand-up paddleboard. I paddleboard from Oregon to Mexico on a paddleboard. And people are like, oh my God, why are you doing this? And I was doing that because I created a education program for kids to address what I felt was the unacceptable amount of single-use plastic that was in, in the water in, in the world. So that education program since made it into the schools where the teachers teach it. It's called RESUP, Rethinking single-use plastic. So I got people's attention by going out, you know, in the ocean on a board with a stick and paddling long, long distances. In 2010, I paddled from Key West to New York on a paddleboard. And I set crazy. the world Did record you... on a lake where I paddled 540 miles in 17 days. And all of that got people's attention. They're like, what in the heck are you doing? And I'm like, I was trying, trying to get your attention so I could like deliver my message, whatever that message is. And same with running from Alabama to Utah at 59 years old. They're like, you're running a marathon a day every day for 76 days at 59 years old? Why? 
okay, well, now that I have your attention, this is why. Yeah. How has your message changed over the 25 years? It's changed with passion. When I ran the 121 marathons in a row, I wanted to do something that was instant gratification. Cause like in my fighting career, I trained for months, fight, have instant gratification. Yay. I won for a second and then go back to training. When I'd run the marathon day after day, after day, after day, after day, after day, after day, get to New York and go, yay. And then that was it. I wanted to do something that was instant gratification. Every time I did it, I got gratified. And so I live in Huntington Beach, California. And I was like, I, I surfed. I played at surfing and was terrible at it, but I caught a few waves. And when you catch a wave at the end of the wave, you're like, that was cool. Let's go do it again. Right. So it was instant gratification. And I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go surf. And so I hired a guy to teach me to surf. And he said, we have to take these longer paddle boards. We have to go in these canals and we have to paddle so that you can gain strength to match the speed of the wave to catch the bigger waves. I was like, that sounds good. Let's go do that. So we started doing that. And there was so much trash in these waterways. I got interested in it, did some research, found out how dangerous single-use plastic was to the human race and so on and so forth. And then I decided that I was going to paddle from Oregon to Mexico and bring awareness to what I felt was the unacceptable amount of plastic in the ocean. So passion. And then when I was approached by Balance of Nature to, to run from Alabama to Utah for this American village, I looked into it. And one of the things that's really great about Mark Devine's program is that it teaches you that we have something called your whole mind, which is your gut, your heart, and your brain inside your head. And all three actually have brain cells in them. And they've proven that, you know, like when you get a gut feeling or you're like your heart pulls you to do something, or if you're thinking something. So when I was approached with this, when I was approached with this to do these marathons for American village, I was using my whole mind to think about it. My gut said, go for it. My heart said, you got to do it. And my mind said, this is a resounding yes, you know, and what fell out of my mouth was I'm in, let's do this, you know? So it's passion. Wow. Passion drives it. Yeah. Do you feel like you've been able to crystallize your message more? The more interviews that you've done and the more well, attention yeah, I mean, that you've my gotten? overall mess, my, my purpose, my passion, my principles, right? My purpose is to become the best version of myself that I could possibly be while I have this short time in my life. That's my purpose. I'm going to be the best version of me that I can be. My passion is to, to be a guide to others like Lily to guide them to be the best versions of themselves that they can possibly be. And my principles are, you know, integrity, honesty, transparency, these types of things. So I've got my three P's in line. My one it is I'm going to help transform as many people as I possibly can in my lifetime to become better versions of themselves. And, and act as their guide to do so. Go, Tom, go. Where did that come from? That came from a video <laughs> that's been a like a really popular video that a guy did like 15 years. No, he did it. I think it was like 2012. Because, yeah. Yeah. 22 now, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I loved that video. There was one thing that I wrote down that you said, do not accept what you've been dealt. I want to dig just a little bit further into that because you moved 35 times before you were removed from your home. Your mom tried to kill you multiple times. You grew up having a sick father. I mean, those are some really tough cards to be dealt. They are. For the longest time, I took the victim role. Something clicked and I decided that I was going to take the victor role because I believe that those are the two choices that we have in life. You can either be the victim or the victor. It, it, Do you it, know it, where the choice that, is yours. You know, you that's know where the that thing. click happened? Like, was there something? 
I believe it clicked when, when I was working with Chef Norris. That's when I believe it clicked. And that too is kind of what we were talking about, a lucky opportunity. Can you talk about how that even came about? Well, that's an interesting story in itself. When I got out of the Marine Corps, when I was in the Marine Corps, I was stationed in South Carolina in a small town called Beaufort, South Carolina. And I was, I've been in martial arts my entire life. Well, the only martial arts school in town was a Chuck Norris school. And so make a long story short, I ended up meeting Chuck Norris when I was like 23-ish in the Marine Corps. And when I got out of the Marine Corps, the only Chuck Norris school that was near where I got out was in Huntington Beach, California. So I started taking lessons there. So I didn't know it at the time, but the person that owned that school was Chuck Norris's cousin. He came up to me one day and he said, Chuck Norris owns this restaurant, like restaurant and bar down in Newport Beach, and they're looking for bouncers. Do you want to do it? And I was like, anything to get me next to him? Yes. So I went and I started being a, a, a doorman down there. Within three months, I was reconnected with Chuck Norris. I was his personal training partner, and I was the general manager of the restaurant. <laughs> and I, you even got to spar with him, right? Yeah, I sparred with him for a little over almost three years. I drove to his house multiple times after running their restaurant. I would drive to his house, sleep in my car, and then train with him at five o'clock in the morning. Oh my God, that's crazy. And you even got one of his famous like spin around kicks? Yeah, exactly. The first time we sparred, I kicked him in the face really hard. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, so it's going to be like that. And I was kind of like, well, yeah, you're kind of like Chuck Norris. <laughs> He goes, okay, touch gloves, turn around, spin. He was, he was known for what they call a spinning back kick was spinning around behind yourself. And in his day in martial arts, that was against, that went totally against the grain. You never turned around, took your eyes off your opponent. And I knew that very well, but Chuck Norris did a spinning back kick, knocked the wind out of me, dropped me to the ground. And we've been good friends ever since. I guess it's a male bonding thing. I don't know. Yeah. I was going to say <laughs> what a bonding moment. Yeah. He's amazing. He, in a town where people were doing things that were not honest, cheating on their fam, wives, drug addicts and alcoholics and all this. Chuck was real focused and solid and a good family person, a great role model. I just have enough, nothing but good things to say about him. He was a real instrumental in my life. Glenn McCusker was real instrumental in my life. And then most recently, I had the opportunity to train with and become very good friends with really famous big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, who became one of my very close friends. And he's been a great role model too. Again, great family person, really focused. I think that he and Kelly Slater really changed surfing into a real sport instead of guys just going out, hanging out and surfing waves. I mean, these guys are real athletes, trained super hard. So Laird's been a, another really big influence in my in my life and my in my development. Mark Devine most recently has become a mentor and a really great influencer in, in my life. Have you shared with them, I mean, your personal story and have they been able to help you heal any of that? I've shared with them all my personal story. They've all just been, they've just been all been really great support systems. I think that we're the master of our own ship. I've pulled myself out of this. Mm. And it was because I had an epiphany that I had the choice in my life. And I chose to be a devout reader. I read constantly. I seek out these self-help and self-improvement programs like Tony Robbins and all these guys. I seek that stuff out. My purpose is to become the best version of myself that I could possibly be in, in this short time that I have called a life. And so I proactively go out and do that because the bridge between an idea and making it happen is action. 
I love that. What would you tell somebody who's stuck in the victim mode? You have a choice. You have a choice. You have a, you have a choice. Do whatever it takes to become the victor. Seek people out. But the first thing, it's all like a choice. You know what I mean? If you're going to stop smoking or something like that, the first thing is, is you have to make up your mind and make a choice that you don't want to be that way or do that anymore. And then you have to go out and take action. You know, one of the things that, the, that I teach people that uh, come to me for this mental strength and resilience training is, is that you have, you know, you set a goal and then you set a bunch of micro goals along the way up to your main goal. It's hard to get depressed or down when you keep saying, yay, I accomplished something. I love that. You know, so set micro goals along the way to your bigger goal and keep accomplishing things. Because when you keep accomplishing things, people ask me, how do you not quit? Yeah. And, and I say, but, but like for quit proof. And I say, well, because quitting is a habit. Every time that you quit, it gets easier to quit the next time and easier to quit the next time and easier to quit the next time and easier to quit the next time. And when you succeed, it becomes a habit. Success is a habit. Quitting is a habit. Which habit do you want to develop? And what actions do you want to take to that end? You know, you see these people that have been hooked on heroin and all the rest of this stuff, and they make a decision. I don't want to live that way anymore. What do they do? They go seek out programs and mentors and other people to help them with that quest. You know, so that's the way you go from victim to victor is it starts with making a decision. I don't want to be a victim anymore. I don't like this. I don't like the way it feels. I don't like that life. I want to do something different. And then they, you go start looking for tools Yeah, and they're out there. People are resourceful. They just got to be resourceful, Rena. That's what they got. They got to be resourceful. We're all resourceful. I mean, you think about it. I mean, what you just did for Lily was crazy resourceful. Like all of these things that you're mentioning, you're like, I could have had her airlifted. I could, you know, I had her a guide. Like all of these pieces that you put into place, that's a lot of planning. Yeah. And micro goals and stuff. And I was like, and I'm not dissing them at all. They never got together as a group. I was like, first thing we need to do is I would never go, if I was in the old West, I would never go across like the wild, wild West without an Apache Indian scout guide, unless I wanted to suck up a bunch of arrows, you know? <laughs> and the other thing is, is one of the things that really great about the Mark Divine program is, you know, he's a Navy SEAL and their teams, you know? And I was like, we've got all these people and parts, but they, we haven't got together as a team. So we had a couple team meetings and brought everyone together as a team and got on the same page as a team. Otherwise we're just going to be out there running around, bumping into each other, not knowing who's on first and so on. So got a guide, had a meeting with the guide and Lily and the producer that's doing their documentary. We talked through these details of the climb. We came up with a sort of a strategy around the climb. And then we got the entire team together and we plugged that strategy into the strategy that the team had been working on. And we came up with a plan and we went and executed that plan. And we learned a lot. Did we make it all the way to the top? No, we didn't make it all the way to the top. But I tell you one thing, we learned enough to make it up to the top if we so decide to do so. And I told Lily, I told her manager, I told her dad and everybody else, I go, whether you realize it now or not, this makes the story way more compelling and better. Oh yeah. Cause people are going to be cheering her on to make it to the top next time. <laughs> it's like the you teaser know, and episode. It all goes back to like things as a kid, right? If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, be quit proof, you know, row, row, row your belt. Life I feel is like a you've dream. had so many successes though. Like, have you had to try again? Oh yeah. I've tried to plan things that, that didn't get funded. Tell me about that. I was going to paddle from San Francisco to Hawaii on a paddleboard. I tried like heck to get it funded and it just never, just never happened. Isn't but it didn't dangerous? quit. I just came up with something else. And Aren't those rough there. waters? Yeah. But I can tell you one thing. The very, very first paddle that I took on was California coastline, some of the toughest coastline in the world, especially from Oregon to like three quarters of the way down the state. 
And I was just surfing for the fun of it. I wasn't a, a waterman, quote unquote. And so when I took on this paddle, I had no idea. And that's how I met Laird Hamilton. I was looking in a magazine and I was like, who's this guy standing up on a board? It was when stand-up paddleboarding was very first new. And, and the guy that was with me was a very famous, iconic surfer, Mickey Munoz. And he starts laughing. And I go, what's so funny? He goes, that's the best waterman in the world, Laird Hamilton. And I go, it is? And he goes, yeah. I go, I want to meet him. To make a long story short, they arranged the meeting. I wasn't able to meet him in Malibu. And he said, well, I can't meet you. I'm going to Hawaii. And I said, well, I'm going to Hawaii. <laughs> so I flew to Hawaii, met him and a guy named Dave Kalama. They taught me how to stand up paddleboard. And I think two months later, I took on probably the toughest, some of the toughest coastline in the world. I had never seen a shark in my life, much less my, the very first shark that I saw was a 17 foot great white shark that was like five feet away from me. Uh, that's terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> I did an interview after that and they were like, you've been about a hundred miles down the coast now. What's the thing that stuck out the most to you? And I said, where I actually fit in on the food chain. <laughs> I said, when I went in the water, I was convinced like I was the alpha creature until I saw my first 17 foot great white shark, like five feet away from me and that I was painfully aware that I was fish food <laughs> yeah terrifying were there people nearby that could make sure you were yes. safe <laughs> yeah I had two wave runners nearby one of the guys that was on the wave runner that saw the shark first was a very big wave surfer crab fisherman for 20 years a strapping human we called him the silverback gorilla he had his back towards me he was taking his wetsuit down and he started dancing on the wave runner and in a really high-pitched voice started pointing down at the water saying whitey 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 all out of breath and a 17 foot great white shark was doing a belly roll underneath the wave runner about three feet underneath the wave runner and i literally dropped down on the board one of the things that's really great i feel that's really great about me is i'm super transparent i got down on my knees on the board and started crying and going i don't want to be anymore this is horrible like i don't want to do this you know and went through this emotional episode same thing when i ran the 120 marathons in a row i only agreement i had was if i could actually pick up my foot and put it down in front of the other foot and i had this conversation with lily before the climb i said we have to make this agreement i said my only agreement with myself when i ran across the nation was if i could really pick up my foot and put it in front of the other foot I wouldn't quit. Do you know how many times I sat down on the side of the road, cried my eyes out and tried to convince myself that I couldn't put my foot down in front of the other one and just go this, I don't want to, I haven't seen a human in a week. You know, when I got to New York and I did the interview, they said, well, what stuck out the most? I go, the United States is vast areas of nothing with sparse areas of something in between. I would run for days and not see anything. Yeah. What did then, you think about during that time? Did you listen to some podcasts? It was like self-meditation and, you know, Mark Devine calls it sacred silence, you know, uh, I just, I would just, would just be with myself and learn to be okay in my own skin. But I would sit down and cry for sometimes a half hour at a time and, and try to convince myself that this was it. No more. I can't take another step. And then I'd finally get up and I'd know, I'd know in deep inside my soul that I could, and I keep going. And like I said to Mark Devine, I said, let probably a little more than halfway through when that happened, I dispensed with a half hour sitting down and crying and using all that energy to cry and just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty therapeutic, but I don't know if that would uh, get me to continue on. The part that gets you to continue on is the why. You have to have your why has to be in place first. It's interesting. If you look at an interview that I did like 20 plus years ago, they said, how are you going to do this? And I said, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but if my why is in place, I'll figure out the how. And I didn't know when I ran from Oregon to Mexico the first time, if I wouldn't have been stopping at children's homes along the way to share my story, I would have quit because it sucks. I mean, running a marathon a day is definitely embracing the suck. It's horrible every day. Has it affected your personal relationships? How's it affected my personal relationships? That's a good question. It's affected both positively and negatively. 
my relationship that I had with my wife that I ended up getting divorced with, it affected it in a very negative way, you know, because you go take four months out of your relationship and run across the country. Some people perceive that as being selfish, no matter what reason that you're doing it for. My wife now, I'm taking 76 days to go run. And we've had a little bit of, I mean, she's been a really big support system, but it's been difficult for her. For me to go leave my home for 76 days, it's been, you know, I could imagine. I mean, I couldn't imagine, but if my husband decided to leave for 76 days, I I think that would be really hard. Yeah. You know, it's been like the yin and the yang. It's affected relationships positively, like motivating and inspiring people like Lily. You know, when I ran across the country, I was like, I'm running a marathon a day. What's your marathon today? Is it to get out of bed? Is it to not hit your wife today? Is it to not take that drink today? Like, what's your marathon today? What am I going to inspire you to do? Ooh, I really love that. That's good. Yeah, it's all relative. Hard is hard. That's the truth. Hard is hard. So it, it hard to you and hard to me is a different thing, but it's still hard. Running a marathon a day every day was hard for me, but some people have, that are struggling with depression and PTSD and all this stuff, it's hard for them to get out of bed in the morning. It's a relative term. And same with the running the 76 marathons in a row. I'm like, this is what I'm doing for, for freedom, family, faith, and being a good constitutional citizen. Like, what are you willing to do? Challenge them. I do have a challenging question. How do you reflect on your parents now? That's a really good question. I think I have a really good answer for it. So I've been interviewed a lot and they say, you know, do you blame your father? Do you blame your mother? Do you blame the circumstances? So no, I don't. Life is hard by its inherent nature. We all have terrible horror stories that we could, you know, tell. I don't place blame. I say that we're all the sum of our experiences in life. And that's what makes us who we are. I've taken those experiences and this is what I've done with it, which in some people's estimation is nothing short of extraordinary, right? So if I would have not been faced with all that stuff and been able and sought ways to overcome it, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. So I don't blame life for being life. I mean, if you look at a plant that grows, it doesn't just sprout straight up. It kind of goes left and right and it's hard, you know, life is hard. So it's just a matter of seeing like the conversation I had with Lily. I go, Lily, let's take a look at it from a different perspective. Have you ever gone back and confronted anyone that gave you a hard time? I know you did shut down the home that you were a part of. Yeah, well, I did that. Um, Which is unbelievable. So I confronted that. I confronted the child molester. You did? Yeah, well, I mean, in court, they wouldn't let me near him, but What was that like? That was liberating and scary and weird and surreal. Those are just some of the words that come to my mind. Do you You feel like you were able to forgive? Yes. Yes. I believe that in all of this, these self-help programs and everything, what I've learned is, is that when we hold hate in our heart, hate only hurts the hater. And what's the purpose of life? Okay. So let me just, let me just throw this out there. If we're going to go deep in the rabbit hole, why not? So what's the purpose of life? And I believe the purpose of life is love. I love that. And I believe that's the purpose of life is love. You know, light overcomes dark, you know, good overcomes evil, love overcomes hate. And I believe the purpose of life is to learn to love and forgiveness is part of that. So yeah, when I went to court with the children's home, And they were talking to me and said, look, the pedophile is going to come into court tomorrow, blah, 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 blah. When I got up on the stand that that day after the pedophile came into court, they were pressing me and I go, make no mistake. Do I want to kill that person? Yes, I do. And the the judge is like, when I hit in the gavel and, you know, you can imagine everybody's tired The jury's going, oh my God, you know, and he just said he wanted to kill him. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah, I straight up want to kill him. He hurt me bad. He robbed me of my innocence. Is that what the feeling that I have? Yes, I want to kill him. I said, but he's already, he's already robbed me of too much of my life. He can't have any more. He can't have any more of my life. It's, 
no, I forgive him. I set him free. I set myself free. It's a hard thing to do. It's a, at the time it was a hard thing to do, but it was one of the most liberating things I've done. I learned the lesson. You have forgiveness is the vehicle to set yourself free. And also he did that to many others who you probably helped set free. Oh yeah, there were 30 other people in the, in the case. I mean, that's just, I mean, I don't know, but another fascinating story. I hired an attorney when I was running. So they told me when I was running, you have to share your story. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm like, well, you got to, if you're going to help other kids that are in the foster care system and the blah, 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 you got to share your story. So to make a long story short, I very quietly, I never told anybody that I was molested. So when I was in an interview, I very quietly said, yeah, and I was molested at the children's home. And you know what I mean? Kind of just breezed through it. And then I got a letter from somebody that was another kid in the children's home that said they got molested too. And so anyway, when the state of California opened the legal door for kids that had been harmed by an institution to go back and actually make a claim against them, I did that. And so the attorney that we hired, anyway, to make a long story short, we made a demand, right, for these people to settle out. And we just call it a day at two people. So the, the attorney came back and, and said, I got great news. They want to settle. And said, great. Well, what do they want to settle for? If we wanted to settle for 10 pieces of something, the settlement offer was a quarter of one piece. And the guy said, That's, this is a great offer. We have to take it. And I said, I have a few questions for you now. Asked him a couple of questions. And I was like, have you ever been associated with this institution in any way, shape or form? Do you have any association with them whatsoever? And the guy goes, well, kind of. And I go, why don't you expand on kind of? And he says, well, when, when they have cases down in this area, I appear as an expert witness for them. And I said, so you have a legal conflict of interest? Is what yeah. you have. <laughs> and I said, so you fly up north. And so it was the Freemasons. I was raised in the Masonic Home for Children. Freemasons are one of the most powerful organizations on earth. They make the Catholic Church look broke. I said, so you fly up to your buddies up there. They take you out to a five-star dinner. You all have cognac, laugh. You assure them that you're going to get these two chumps to settle for one penny out of a dollar. And I said, this is a part in the story where I look at you and I go, I don't know about him. I said, but you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> so I fired him. And the guy I was bodyguarding for that owned the largest computer memory vending company he goes, I know somebody that you need to talk to. It was the attorney that Aaron Brockovich used against the company, right, for the environmental thing. And so his name's Tom Girardi. And so I went and I met with Tom Girardi and he said, I can do this. I said, you realize what you're taking on here, don't you? And he goes, oh yeah, I totally realize what I'm taking on here. And so he signed the agreement, pushed the agreement over me to sign. I had the pin in my hand. I looked at him. I said, Mr. Girardi, can I ask you a question? He goes, yeah. I go, are you a hundred pound gorilla? He looked at me, he kind of laughed. He goes, yeah, I'm a hundred pound gorilla. I go, because you're going to need to be, I go, this is the, one of the most powerful organizations on earth, right? So when it came time, we won the case. And when it come, came time to settling, we almost didn't settle because they didn't want to shut the home down. And I Whoa. said, no, 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 oh, no, no, you're not going to raise kids anymore. That's part of the agreement to settle. So we ended up settling that they were going to raise the kids that were in the home out to be 18 years old, right? Rather than disrupt their lives again. And they weren't going to accept any more kids in the home. So they to make a long story short, they don't raise kids anymore. So I shut the home down, made the front page of a bunch of newspapers. It was this full David and Goliath story. But yeah, if, we shut the home down. If that's not a legacy right there in itself. I mean, and, and gave 30, because there was 30 kids over 25 years that they found had been molested as well. So all of those kids ended up getting some type of restitution. And really it was a, it was a liberating thing, right? It's, I felt some justice, you know, oh, by shutting the, that home down. That's amazing. Is that some of your fuel right there? Some of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Some of it's like I said, we're all the sum of our experiences in life, you know, and I've had tons of them. So I told Lily too, I said before the climb, I said, Lily, when you get up this mountain, you're going to be a different Lily Brash than you are right now, right? Because you're going to go through a crucible. You're going to get heated up. You're going to get challenged. You're going to do things that are so far outside your comfort zone. You're not even going to believe it. But when you do those things, you come out a different person on the other side. It's one of the things I say about running 121 marathons in a row. I said, you want to find out something about your core values? Go do yourself a challenge like that. You'll find a lot, a lot about who you are and what your values are and what you really stand for and stuff like that. Have you ever had a moment in your life, though, where you're like, okay, I've made it. I'm good. No. Uh, in fact, when people tell me that I look at them and I kind of smile and giggle and go, look, do me a favor. Don't drag me into your private little hell, you know, because there are people tell me, oh, you're getting older now. I should probably put that down and quit. You know, oh, you're 59 years old. You can't do that. No, I say, you know, the problem is, is that you can't do it. And misery loves company. And because in your mind, you can't do it. Nobody can do it. So now I think I'll be doing this kind of stuff till I take my last breath. You know, that's amazing. Because there's a difference between being rich and enriched, you know, and I found enrichment in this. There's a difference between traveling and being worldly. It's the, that dual side of the coin type thing. I've known really, really, really bad in my life by anybody's standards, you know, and this makes me feel good. So I believe I'm going to keep doing it. And it's really just trying to be selfless and getting outside of myself and doing things, whatever they may be that might benefit something or someone besides myself. That really is true fulfillment, I believe. I just got a plaque for running on foot over 50,000 miles in my life, right? So I should be, have no knees, no back. I should be done, but I'm feeling great. I feel great. That's you amazing. Know? I love yeah. that. That's, that's really inspiring. Is there yeah. anything that you would like to ask my dad? I would like to ask your dad a lot of questions about you. Is that terrible? <laughs> All right, go ahead. Go ahead. Let's see what you got. <laughs> I would ask him how you were raised, what your childhood was like, you know, what were some of the struggles that you went through? If we all live the movie called Me, right? Where we're the star and everybody else is ancillary characters in the movie. So I would like to talk to your dad, whose movie is called Him, and get his perspective on how he sees you in his movie. Does that make Ooh. sense? Yeah, I like that. And then if you go to the next movie and it's your dad and the next movie theater, and it's your uncle. I would like to sit with your dad and, and talk to him about his movie called Me and how he sees you as a supporting character in his movie, because it's not how you see you in his movie. That's so interesting. That kind of reminds me too of how you took care of your mom, right? At the end. Yeah, before she died. Yeah, I took care of my mom. When my mom was on her medication, she was medicated, but she wasn't just completely out there. So I asked her, I said, I said, mom, I said, did God really tell you to kill me first three times? Because they caught her three times trying to kill her kids. And she looked at me and she goes, yes. And I go, really? <laughs> she goes, yeah, God told me to kill you first all three times. I go, okay, well, note to self, don't ask questions you don't really want the answer for. And number two is I'm going to have to have a conversation with God. I was going to say, like, how did that affect your relationship with God? How does that work? You know, uh, <laughs> what's going on here type thing. So a thing too is, is that if we can make humor out of things, it's a good thing. It's easier to accept things and we make humor out of them. You're like, um, I don't like God very much. <laughs> well, I'm, I've got, I'm wondering. <laughs> Makes you go, hmm, yeah, right? So Dang, okay. yeah, that's that's a hard, harsh reality. Do you feel like you were able to have any nice moments with her at the end? Oh, yeah. My mom was a wonderful, wonderful person. She was just extremely mentally ill. And my dad had cancer, kidney disease, and tuberculosis at the same time. He was taking every single narcotic that you can take at one time. And you, listen, if you took Secondol, Tuanol, Valium, Talwin, all of these painkillers, you'd be weird too. Oh, hell yeah. Heck yeah. Are you kidding me? Like, 
like I say, I said, listen, I would never, I hope to God, please, God, please, please don't ever put me in the position that my father was in, please. I mean, I would just hate to have to face all of that stuff and have a mentally ill wife and three kids. I would really like to think that I would do better, but I don't know. I mean, put yourself under that, put yourself in his position and take another look. Same with my mom, seriously mentally ill. I mean, they did electric shock therapy on her. I guess what it does is it helps them reprogram your mind, supposedly. It's sort of like a lobotomy type of thing. So, you know, faced with all of that, would I be any saner or do any better? I don't know. Probably not, you know? Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I would dream of being up at Lily's mountain climb. Maybe I will uh, take my daughter out there and cheer her on or something. That would be crazy. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. This is really a lot of facets to this interview, and it's really the power of not only human existence, but the overcoming all odds. And look how powerful our parents really are on us, where our parents are are just people, and yet they or their issues, physical or mental, can have just a devastating effect on our children or a tremendous positive influence on our children, where it gives you a running start at life for the next generation. You know, he asked the question also, isn't that what the movie that I'm playing is living for my parents' dreams, their parents' dreams, their grandparents' dreams, and previous generations? And that's what I've instilled in my, all my own children. They even give me credit for making them keep that same type of substance going for the future, where I had three daughters, would have liked to even had some more children. And my daughters have 13 children together. Certainly, they found out that it's quite a task. And having children or taking care of parents when they get old or taking care of anyone can be the biggest job that we ever have. Be rejected by your own mother in her old age where she's breaking down and has had issues. Take care of her. That's some compliment to be able to do that. And also where he's been counted out of doing different things, he finds a way. And I love the statement that you can be a victor or you can be a person who is a victim. And those that decide with the the strength of your mind and cooperation, hopefully where people can encourage you, is very helpful and possibly making someone go in the right direction. But finally, you just have to say, no more meatballs and spaghetti for me. And to be able to rise to the occasion and say that nothing is impossible and that I can do anything is the message that he's trying to give to other people as well and help other people where they think that it's impossible to do something, stepping up, climbing a mountain, Stepping to the plate, taking your swing is what life's all about. And we're only here a very short period of time. So we want to make every day count, every moment count. Somebody says, and they've said it to me, Wayne, why are you still working four or five jobs? Is that you want to, with your whole life, you want to be able to be productive and stay in motion is what keeps you alive. When you decide to lay down, throw the dirt on me. But until that day, let's give it everything that we have. I can't get over that he's running all these marathons and he's trying the surfing even when it initially failed. And he goes out and searches out whether it's a person who might even be the top player at whatever that possible instrument is to play, whether it's music or boxing or jujitsu or kickboxing or paddle boating, climbing mountains or running, wants to be able to do it all and be able to test his physical ability and his mental fortitude to doing anything. And that's the message he's trying to now give to others. Isn't it ironic as well that doing, spending all this time doing these 
adventures and you're married, not everyone is going to be supportive of that type of behavior where you have to take into consideration your better half. And he's found someone that's more supportive the second time around. But that's not an easy situation. What do you think of that, Rini? Definitely. So the thing is, is that a lot of us become workaholics or we want to do our thing or we want to make our gains on ourselves, still have to understand that we have to share ourselves and also the needs of other people that are around us equally in our journey. And still, all the experiences, pluses and minuses, he keeps improving on his attributes of working with people. Unfortunately, he's had to learn a lot of lessons the hard way, but rejection doesn't take lightly, does he? Who does? Rises above it. Right. But he rises above it and rises to any challenge and shows that no matter how anyone might feel about you, you make your own story and you work on it, you work on it, you put in the effort and the time that you fight even your own mind of wanting to quit something or that can't take one more step. And you push yourself and you do one more step and then you can do another and another and another. And I just love that part of it. He's pretty remarkable. Indeed. The part, again, being rejected by his mom, being abused as a child. And the fact is, is that he even helped shut down the place that were abusing even other children, which is spectacular accomplishment. He also said that he is not going to hold any grudges and he can forgive people. That's not easy to do either. But he's had to overcome certain anguishes that he has decided to not let that affect him from having a future, which is wonderful. I didn't go into great detail in the beginning about all the abuses, but I just kind of summed it up. Yeah, he calls himself quit-proof. I believe it. I think he's quit-proof. And the truth of the matter is, is that it's just a shame that someone has to go through that type of rejection and abuse to be able to overcome it and make yourself almost like Superman, invincible. It's almost like watching Forrest Gump, you know, where no matter what would happen, that he would then become a championship runner, where he, again, was always trying to help the people around him and where he, he could just had a good heart and could wanted to participate and, and be part of a family life, which is how his story ends in the movie. It's really, he's really made like a movie. And to help this girl that in a wheelchair that can hardly even move and be able to climb a mountain is incredible. But look how he also makes sure that because of his experiences, to take safety in mind and to go as far as you can go. And then, okay, we've got to take a step back. We've got to figure out you want to accomplish more, or do more. We've got to figure out how to do it maybe on the next adventure. And if you got to climb up that mountain, I wouldn't be able to get you back down. We'd have to have a helicopter or something. And isn't it better to say, okay, let's go as far as we can go and then come back down. We'll figure out what plan we want to do in the future. But the fact is, is that to push yourself, to elevate yourself, to take every step that you can take, isn't that what the accomplishment was from the beginning? What difference does it make if it's 2,200 feet or 20, 2,500 feet? Taking every possible step that you can take to go forward without risk. Another yeah. great lesson. I love too that he kind of stepped in there and told her dad, like, let her quit. Let this be her battle. Right. And the fact is, is that it's not where she was going to quit, but to be able to come to consensus to say, hey, I've gone as far as I can go. If I want to go further, I have to do a little better planning. There's always a way to progress on what you've done. That's a very healthy way to look at things. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 